0: Please turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. Turn to chapter 19, if you would. That's on page 193, if you're using the Bible underneath the seats. That Bible is available to you if you need it. Page 193, Joshua 19. Our text today is actually a long text. uh, Chapters 13 to 21, but we're going to start in chapter 19, and you'll see why just here in a few minutes. Friends, if you're new here uh, with us at Redeeming Grace Church over the first few weeks of the summer, we as a church have gone through the first major section of this book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua 1 to 12 is the story uh, of God's people, Israel, crossing into the land of Canaan and then, and then conquering the peoples of Canaan and fulfillment of God's ancient promises to, to Abraham and the patriarchs to give them the land of Canaan, and today uh, we turn the page to the second and kind of final big section of Joshua, and and, and here the the stories of battles and triumphs give way to uh, what amounts to a tedious land grant <laughs> as Joshua divides the land of Canaan and apportions it to the tribes of Israel as their inheritance. Friends, if you took the time to uh, read the sermon text ahead of time, as we encourage you to do each and every Sunday, I'm sure that you couldn't help but notice that this text basically amounts to an enormous list of hard to pronounce names, place names really that describe the the borders of the parcels of land that each uh, tribe receives, as well as the cities and villages uh, within those boundaries that the Lord gives the tribes to possess. Friends, this text is where Bible reading plans go to die. Right, <laughs> right. It's a, if you make it past Leviticus, you know uh, you're gonna you're gonna you might fall into the quagmire of Joshua thirteen to twenty one. Uh, Let's just look at a sample of the text to give you an idea of how most of this long text works. Look at uh, chapter 19, and and let's start in verse 10, and let's just read a few verses. The the third lot came up for the people of Zebulun, according to their clans, and the territory of the inheritance reached as far as Sarid. And then their boundary goes westward and on to Marial and touches Davisheth, and then the brook that is east of Jachniong. From Sarid it goes in the other direction, eastward, toward the sunrise, to the boundary of Chisloth-Tabor. From there, it goes to Daberath, and to Japhia. Uh, From there, it passes along to the east, toward the sunrise, to to Gath-Hefer, to Eth-Kazin, and going on to Ramon, it bends toward Nia. Then, on the north, the boundary turns about to Henathon and ends at the valley of Ihtahel, and Katah, Nehalal, Shemron, Edalah, and Bethlehem. 12 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the people of Zebulun, according to their clans. These cities with their villages. And all God's people said, (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I, I, I didn't expect to get an amen there exactly. Because this text kind of feels like what it might be like to march down to the, the Maricopa County Courthouse and, and read a random property deed or, or land grant. At, at first glance, it feels distant, it feels archaic, and totally irrelevant to our lives. But friends, I, I want you this morning to put yourself in the shoes of ancient Israel. You know, it's one thing to read a random property deed or a last will and testament that has no attachment to you. Yeah, boring. But it's quite another thing, isn't it? To read a will that re- that reveals the details of your personal inheritance, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine the wonder and the thrill of hearing the details of Israel's inheritance as an Israelite for the first time? You. You mean all this land that I can see? It's ours. Yep, from the brook to the sunrise, and then bending toward that valley over there—it's all yours. All the towns and all the villages within them. Oh wait, wait, do, do I need to? Do we need to pay somebody for this? No, son, no, daughter—it's all free to you from the hand. of of your God. All you have to do is by faith, receive your inheritance, and then follow the Lord God for the rest of your days. It's remarkable when you think about it, isn't it? When it's your inheritance, all of a sudden, the details about the boundaries and cities and houses and lands makes you bristle with excitement, not yawn and boredom. And yet still, you might protest, okay, John, well, that's well and good, but what does all this have to do with me? I mean, you're talking about an event in ancient Israel in 1400 BC. Why should I care about this in AD 2023? This land isn't my land. It's not your land. It's Israel's land. Well, not so fast. Friends, because of the importance of the land within the storyline of the Bible, Israel's land Their inheritance is profoundly relevant to you and to me. And so before we begin begin this morning, I just want to take a few minutes and think biblically and theologically about this story's place in God's redemptive plan, which I hope will make it sparkle with significance to you this morning. Friends, did you realize that in a sense, the entire Bible is about land? When God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in a land, in a garden temple in Eden. It was there that God welcomed humanity into the joy of his Sabbath rest so that we would worship him and enjoy him forever. Adam and Eve's commission was, was then to expand the borders of the land of Eden across the entire earth by being fruitful and multiplying and exercising the reign of God over his creation. Through humanity, God's glory was designed to cover the earth as the waters cover the the sea. But instead, what happened? Adam grasped for self-rule and rebellion against God. He forfeited the joy and rest found in God for false idols of his own making. In the fall, Adam and Eve were what? They were exiled outside the land. And humanity, all of us, were barred from the presence of God in sin. And yet, in his mercy, God chose to make a new start with humanity through Abraham. And within his great promises to Abraham was, a, was the guarantee not only of a great offspring and blessing for the world through that offspring, but the promise that God would once again dwell with his people in a land, in the land of Canaan. And yet, friends, for the rest of his days, Abraham sojourned in Canaan as a pilgrim. The only land Abraham ever owned in his entire life was a burial plot he bought in Hebron to bury his wife Sarah in. Even so, friends, Abraham bought that parcel of ground in faith that one day all the dirt and all the fields and all the streams and mountains and forests and rocks of Canaan would be the property of his offspring. Why? Why? Because the God of heaven and earth, his covenant God had promised it. That's what we're seeing come to pass in Joshua, in live action. God is making good on his word. But for our purposes today, friends, we have to understand that the promised land, this land of Canaan, it's not an end of itself, right? God wasn't merely interested in giving Abraham and his offspring kind of prime Mediterranean real estate. No, this, this great fulfillment here in Joshua is just the next stage in God's plan to, re- to reverse the curse and bring salvation to the world. If I could say it this way, Canaan, the land of Canaan, was to be the beachhead from which God would reclaim Fortress Earth. Okay, so think like invasion of Normandy in World War II. The Allied forces invaded Europe from the coast of Normandy. They captured Omaha Beach, right, and the beaches there in Normandy. And from that great beachhead, the Allies staged the rest of the invasion of Fortress Europe. Friends, when God gave his people the land here in Joshua 13 to 21, We're seeing him set up a beachhead for the salvation of the world and for the restoration of humanity to him. The glory of the Lord really will cover all the dry lands as the water covers the sea. And Canaan is just the first installment in that great project. You say, John, what are you saying? What I'm saying, friends, is the land of Canaan is a shadow of what's to come. The dirt of Canaan is a prophetic sneak peek of a much greater land and a more perfect rest that God has prepared for all those who trust in Christ for salvation. Friends, Canaan is the signpost of your final destination if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ by faith. It's an earthly picture of the heavenly reality. See, so John, can you prove it from scripture? I'm so glad you asked. Listen to Hebrews eleven eight 8 to 10. You can turn there, but I'm just going to read it. Hebrews 118 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. As an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, friends, Canaan, the new Eden, previews the eternal city, the new Jerusalem. Or how about Romans 4.13, where Paul calls Abraham the promised heir, not of Canaan, but of the world. Friends, you realize that one day on the last day when Abraham opens his resurrected eyes when Christ returns, he will open them not merely to possess Canaan, but the cosmos. He's heir of the world. And What the New Testament makes so gloriously clear is that these great promises are not merely for Abraham and his physical offspring, but for his spiritual children from all the nations of the world who believe in the promises of God made through his son the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate offspring of Abraham. Friends, when you, my beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord, when you close your eyes in death, you can do so with the full confidence that one day you will awake to possess, along with all the redeemed, the limitless boundaries of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Friends, have you ever noticed how the New Testament writers speak often speak of believers' inheritance in Christ using that very language, right? We read one of those passages this morning in our call to worship from Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our full what? Our full inheritance until we take possession of it. Or you think of a passage like 1 Peter 1, which speaks of our internal inheritance that is imperishable, that's undefiled, that's unfading, that's kept in heaven for you. Friends, where do you think the New Testament writers got this verbiage of inheritance language to describe what we have in part now and that what we'll receive in full on the last day? Where did they get that? They got it from Joshua 13 to 21. The inheritance of Canaan previews our inheritance in heaven. So friends, this text should not cause you to snooze but with a million hallelujahs to rejoice in the grace and goodness of our God, to lean forward in hope to receive all that God has promised us. Let me give you the main idea of what I think, the main idea of the text, you know, in expositional preaching, it's just the main idea of a text, is the main idea of the sermon. It's a long text. So here's the main idea of this long text that I pray will be the main idea of the sermon this morning. Here it is: our promise-keeping God will surely give us our eternal inheritance but we must trust fully in him to possess it. That's it. Our promise keeping God will surely give us our eternal inheritance, but we must trust fully in him to possess that inheritance. Friends, three points this morning that I'll I'll get from throughout the text today. Number one, no falling words. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, just stay tuned. No falling words. Number two, it's yours. Now take it. It's yours, now take it. Number three, further up and further in. Beloved, I pray that today we'll just be overwhelmed with the sense of God's faithfulness to us and goodness. The Lord would give us a deep and abiding commitment to by faith act upon the promises of God until the day that we receive our inheritance. Let's look at this first point, no falling words. Look with me back at the beginning of the passage, Joshua 13. Okay, this is when I should hear pages rustling, heads down, Joshua 13. You guys got, all got your phones out, I guess, okay? Look at the text, verse 1. Let's begin reading verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. Thank you, God. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and those of the Gesherites, from the Shahor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the, to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the of the Yavim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Maria, and that belongs to the Sidonians and to Aphek, and to the boundary of the Amorites, to the land of the, the Gabalites and, to, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise from Baal Gad, Below Mount Hermon to Lebohamoth, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mishfroth Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself, I myself would drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes into the half tribe of Manasseh. Friends, Joshua's task is urgent and it's clear. I mean, in his old age, he's given this urgent task to defeat the pockets of resistance that still remain in Canaan and then to what? To divide Canaan and apportion it as an inheritance to the nine tribes and to the half tribe of Manasseh. Friends, did you notice that word inheritance in verses six and seven? Friends, this word dominates the pages of Joshua 13 to 21. It's mentioned like 48 times. Why? Why not just use the word peace or plot or even property? Why the word inheritance? Friends, the the author of Joshua wants to hammer the point home that this land, as it's divided up for Israel, is not something they've achieved. It's not something they've earned. It's something they've been graciously given. You know, by nature, an inheritance is, is a gift handed down, right? It's not something that's merited. And so it is with the land of Canaan. This is a gracious gift from a good father. Friends, I hope it's obvious from such a a long text. We simply do not have time this morning to look at all the nitty gritty details of this passage, and I know that will hopefully elicit a sigh of relief from you this morning. But so what I want to do is simply to kind of survey the highlights. Uh, We're going to kind of take an ESPN Sports Center view of Joshua 13 to 21, right? We're not looking at every pitch of the game. We're simply going to watch the big plays together. Okay. Now, you might have noticed from verse 7 that Joshua only mentions nine and a half tribes when there are really 12 tribes of Israel. But you'll remember from chapter 1, there are actually two and a half tribes to whom Moses had given land east of the Jordan River, outside Canaan, on the condition that they would actually fight with all the tribes when the time came to enter Canaan. Reuben, Gad, and the other half-tribe of Manasseh. And so really in the rest of chapter 13, Joshua is honoring that deal and explaining that all these tribes would inherit land east of the Jordan. What's instructive for us is that all throughout this account here in chapter 13, the two and a half tribes receiving their land, the narrator reminds us time and time again of God's incredible faithfulness to conquer Israel's enemies while they were in their wilderness wandering. So just let your eyes scan across the text. Look at verse 10 to 12. Verses 10 to 12. He mentioned Sihon. King of the Amorites and Og, king of Bashan. Now, these were two mighty kings east of the Jordan that Israel conquered before they entered into Canaan. You know, nomadic Israel had no business defeating warrior tribes of the Amorites, and yet God gave them into Israel's hands. Sihon is mentioned again in verse 21 and verse 27. Og is mentioned in verses 30 to 31. Even Balaam, is mentioned in, in verses tw- in verse uh, 22. You remember Balaam, according to Numbers 22, Balaam was the sorcerer hired by Balak, another king of the Amorites, to pronounce curses upon Israel. And yet, every time Balaam opened his mouth to utter the curses on Israel, what came out? Blessing for Israel. It's just hilariously awesome what the Lord did, right? friends, why didn't the author of Joshua just get to the point here in chapter 13 and just list out the boundaries alone? Why go through the rigmarole to mention Sihong and Og several times and even Balaam? Well, friends, he is reminding these two and a half tribes that even though their portion was not within the land of Canaan, what they received was a gift from a faithful God who had defeated all their enemies. And if they would just trust in him, he will dr- drive out the remaining peoples. He will be faithful to them still. Look at chapter 14. Chapter 14 to 19 are the dividing of the land for the remaining nine and a half tribes in the in the land of Canaan. That, that Joshua, along with Eliezer, the high priest, divided in a portion for the people. Friends, you know what becomes clear as you read the rest of chapters 14 to 19? This isn't some kind of random mishmash of names and places. From a literary standpoint, and the Bible is a piece of literature, from a literary standpoint, it is not a casserole, okay? (laughs) It's more like a a finely crafted sword, right? Carefully constructed. It's carefully constructed to to make a, a certain point. First of all, chapter 14 begins, not with a tribe receiving land, but an individual. In verses 6 to 14, a man named Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the, the Kenizzite, receives an inheritance. And then at the end of chapter 19, the kind of bookend of the text, in verses 49 to 50, another individual, Joshua himself, receives an inheritance. So, so the whole thing begins with Caleb receiving land and ends with Joshua receiving land. Now, why do you think that is? Might that have some special significance in the storyline of the Bible? I'll let you think about that for a few minutes and we'll come back to it, okay? Then in chapter 15, the tribe of Judah is the first tribe to receive an inheritance. And Judah's inheritance is by far the most significant. Judah has the pride of place, as it were. Judah's land would be in the southern part of Canaan. It's going to stretch from the Dead Sea to the east of the Mediterranean or to the east uh, toward the Medi- to the west toward the Mediterranean. Uh, chapter 15 reveals that, that Judah's inheritance includes some 115 cities and villages. If you read that list, 115. I mean it's huge. The next two chapters, okay, stay with me here. this is going somewhere, okay? The next two chapters, Chapters sixteen and seventeen describe the borders and towns belonging to the sons of of Joseph, the descendants of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember, who's Joseph? Joseph is the son of Jacob, whom God used to save the entire family of Israel from from famine. The brothers sold Joseph into slavery, and yet what they intended for evil, God intended for great good to save many alive. And interestingly. Here in Joshua, even though Manasseh is Joseph's firstborn son, Ephraim is the one who receives the inheritance first. Why? Why is that? Why does Ephraim's descendants get theirs before the firstborn Manasseh's? Why does Judah get the first dibs of all of them? Friends, because there are no fallen words. Because our God is a promise-keeping God. Do you remember the scene in Genesis 48 and 49 a couple of years ago that we looked at when when the sons of Jacob came before their elderly, nearly blind father to receive a blessing before he died? you remember that? Joseph brought in his two young boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, to see Grandpa Jacob one last time. And, and he set it up so, so that Manasseh would be in front of Jacob's right hand, his dominant hand, and Ephraim would be in front of Jacob's left hand, his weaker hand. And yet when, when when Jacob began to bless the boys, he crisscrossed them. He did one of these things, right? And Joseph protested and said, No, Dad, you got it wrong, man. And Jacob said, No. I'm doing this very intentionally, that the younger brother Ephraim would become greater than his older brother Manasseh. You see, friends, God is sovereign. He's free to operate how he wants. He so often upends conventional expectations in the way that he saves and works. And so when we read here in Joshua 16 that Ephraim is receiving the inheritance first, it's Jacob's prophetic words coming to pass. Ephraim was indeed the greater son of Joseph. And not only because his descendants were positioned ahead of Manasseh, Friends, did you know when it came time for the children of Israel to cross over the Jordan and claim the promised land? It was an Ephraimite who led them. Joshua, the son of Nun, the descendant of Ephraim. But what about Judah? Why did he have the pride of place? Well, because like with Jacob's sons, or Joseph's sons, Jacob prophesied about his son Judah that from his offspring would arise whom? The king, the scepter will not depart. From Judah, it's a messianic promise. It's a kingship metaphor. From Judah's line came King David and the great lion of the tribe of Judah, David's greater son, our risen king, the one who sits on the throne of David forever, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, what we're meant to see in all of this is our God making good on his word. Every little detail showcases the promise-keeping faithfulness of our God. In chapters 18 and 19, Joshua and and Eliezer, they divide the rest of the land among the tribes to Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. And then in chapter 20, the Lord provides cities of refuge among the tribes for those who unintentionally uh, committed manslaughter, took the life of another. Israel was to reflect the justice and mercy of God. And then finally, in chapter 21, the children of Levi, the priests, received their inheritance And we're going to hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it in a bit. Now, look at how chapter 21, verse 43, sums up the whole thing. Turn to chapter 21 and look at verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Friends, these are some of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. I'm serious. These verses aren't only the kind of the main idea summary of Joshua and Joshua 13 to 21, which they are. They're kind of a a main idea summary of the entire Bible up to this point. God had brought his people back into his rest. The major part of the war was over. Not one of Israel's enemies had withstood them. They dwelt safe and secure at rest in the land, in this new Eden. Friends, I know I haven't, Explain yet why I called this part of the sermon No Falling Words. It's because of verse 45. Verse 45, the word translated failed in our English Bible. It's an accurate translation, but it doesn't capture the nuance of the original language. It actually says in the Hebrew, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel fell. Not failed. Not one word fell. All came to pass. Friends, it seems to be a play on words with verse 44. Look at verse 44. Not one of Israel's enemies was able to stand. They all fell, right? But just the opposite with God's word, it always and forever stands. Not one word falls every single time the Lord keeps his promises. Not one word of the Lord falls to the ground wasted and unkept, everything comes about. When it comes to our God, friends, there are no falling words. He is one hundred percent reliable, one hundred percent faithful, all the time. Friends, think of it. Think of this: if you kept your word ninety-nine percent of the time, you would be an awesome human, <laughs> right? You would be trusted and respected and praised for your reliability and your integrity, right? But friends, if God kept his word 99% of the time, God would not be God. He would be an imposter. And Christianity would be a charade. And we might as well all go home. But praise God, from cover to cover of the scriptures, not one of the good promises of the Lord has fallen. No matter the obstacles, no matter the opposition, our God is unstoppably faithful. Think about it. Think about it. Abraham's sin could not stop God's promise. Jacob's deceit nor Esau's violent threats did not deter our God. The brothers' treachery against Joseph nor a severe famine could halt the promises. 400 years of Egyptian slavery weren't too much. Pharaoh's power wilted in the onslaught of the might of the Almighty. The Red Sea rolled back, the manna fell, the rock split open, the Jordan stood in a heap, the mighty kings dropped one by one by one. None of it could cause even one of God's good promises to drop impotently to the ground, not one. My friend, this is a God that you and I can trust in our deepest struggles and in our darkest circumstances. Because not only does your sin and my sin not threaten the character of God, not only do your circumstances not threaten His purposes, in Christ, friend, if you're in Christ by faith, God uses all these things to bring about the fulfillment of His promises in your life. Because all God's promises find their final yes and amen in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, friends, if you're trusting in Him alone for your eternal rescue from sin, God's word will not fail you one single time. You realize this, right? God's not sitting anxiously on his throne, kind of fretfully wringing his hands about how he could just possibly keep his word to you because your situation is just a bit extra, (laughs) right? Your besetting sin is just a little too much. Your suffering is just a little too hard. That's the final straw that broke the camel's back. No, God is utterly sovereign. He is unflinchingly good. He is unstoppably faithful and true. If all our mess, you have a mess? If all our mess couldn't stop God from keeping his promises and sending us Jesus, then surely now that Jesus has come and lived and died and risen again in our place, nothing can stop our God from working all things for our good. No amount of sin or suffering can deter our God from keeping His promises and bringing you safely home. I love the end of Joshua 21 so much. It's like like the author surveys Israel's history. He contemplates all the struggles and failures and obstacles and trials, and he just realizes none of them stopped the Lord. didn't stop them. This paragraph sings, doesn't it? The Lord gave us the land. The Lord gave us rest. Not one enemy could stand. Not one word of the Lord fell. Hallelujah. Give God the praise. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul does in Romans, right? Over and over again in Romans, Paul rehearses the intersection of God's mercy in Christ and his sovereignty to keep his promises. And finally, it's like he just, he just throws up his hands at the end of Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Friends, this is how you and I ought to respond here in Joshua with a heart that just bursts in worship. Oh, the depth of the faithfulness and goodness and sovereignty of God. Friends, when one day on that last day, when Christ comes, when you and I stand together in Canaan's fair and happy land that our Christ even now is preparing for us, I guarantee you that you will look back over the course of your life and you will echo these words. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of King Jesus has fallen. All have come to pass. Praise be to our God. There are no falling words. Number two, it's yours. Now take it. It's yours. Now take it. And one of the unique things about these chapters are certain theological tensions within the passage. So on the one hand, God gives rest to Israel's enemies. On the other hand, it's clear that enemies still remain in the land, right? That's why the author of Hebrews points out, even as we read earlier, that Joshua's rest is not final. It's not ultimate. There's still a rest remaining for the people of God. We already read about some of this at the beginning of chapter 13, but there's more. If you want to read it this afternoon, it'd be good for you. Chapter 15, verse 63 records Jebusites in Jerusalem that really would not be driven out until the time of King David, actually. And chapter 16, verse 10 tells us of Canaanites in Gezer. And then chapter 17, verse 12 is in the city of Manasseh. Okay, so there's a tension with remaining enemies, but there's that's not the only tension. We also see uh, within the text a tension between the land being a gift of the Lord on the one hand, while clear commands for the children of Israel to to rise up and get busy possessing the land on, on the other hand. And we see that clearly in chapter 18, verse 3. Chapter 18, verse 3. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? (laughs) Right? All right, it's yours. How long are you going to wait around to take it? It's almost like we see in Joshua, friends, the kind of the same already-not-yet tension we understand to be true of our life as Christians right now in the kingdom of God, right? Already sin's power and its penalty has been broken through the cross and the empty tomb, but not yet we are free. Are we free of its presence? Already, God has made us a new creation in Christ, but our new creation life is far from consummated, isn't it? In this world of sin and death. Yet our God is working in us, right? Our God is working in us with the will and to work of his good pleasure, but accompanying that promise for us is the command that Paul says, work out your own salvation now with fear and trembling. Not to earn it, but as a faith response to your salvation. So, so in other words, friends, God intends for the way in which we receive the promises of the inheritance is not to kind of just lay back on the spiritual couch and, and hope they come to us, right? No, it's to, it's to strive forward and to wage war on our sin by faith, to persevere in, in faith in the promises that find their ultimate fulfillment on the last day. The inheritance is ours by grace, but we must take it by persevering faith in Christ, So let's look at a quick example of this in the text. Turn back to chapter 14. Chapter 14. I mentioned earlier that chapters 14 to 19 are bookended with the giving of inheritance to Caleb on the front end and Joshua on the back. Why is that? Well, Caleb and Joshua were the two spies, according to the The book of Numbers chapter 13 that brought back a faith-filled report to Moses. All the other 10, right? Doubted God. The, The other 10 saw the obstacles. Caleb and Joshua only saw the God of the promise, right? And they brought back a faithful report. Friends, this structure, I think, of Caleb and Joshua reveals a theological point. Ultimately, it's those like Caleb and Joshua who follow the Lord by faith, who receive the reward of the inheritance. Let's look at chapter 14, verse 6, and let's read a little bit about this guy, Caleb, okay? Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart but my brothers who went up with me made uh, the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land on which your feet has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness." Which means, friends, real quick, how long was the conquest? Five years. 40 years of wandering, five-year conquest. 45 years. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron. Yes, that Hebron, Abraham's Hebron, to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the Lord, and, excuse me, in the land had rest from war. I love that. I love that. Friends, Caleb's courage throughout his life wasn't because of his brash personality, right? Or his macho warrior mentality. I mean, for crying out loud, Caleb is 85 years old, right? He's an old man. The reason Caleb was so bold was because of his deep and abiding faith in the promises of God. Do you understand what's happening there in verse 12? Caleb is asking for a land where the Anakim are. The Anakim, however you pronounce it. These are the the who? These are the giants of the land. Think Goliath of Gath in 1 Samuel, later in, in Israel's history. Caleb was no more afraid of them on this day than he was 45 years earlier when he initially spied the land. Why? Why? Because he had seen God act in might and power and grace time and time and time again. And more recently, what had the Lord promised Joshua in chapter 13, verse 6? What did he promise Joshua in 13.6? I myself will drive them out before all the people of Israel. So this this isn't Caleb being cocky in his 85-year-old savvy or experience. This is Caleb being confident in the promise of God. Verse 12, it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said, just as the Lord said. Friends, this is a man with a big God theology that's fit for the scary trials of this life. This is the Old Testament version of Paul in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? This echoes David's words in the psalm, right? If the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom then shall I fear? You see, our fears, friends, the fears that we have in this life, they turn to resolve, they turn to bravery when we look at the world through the eyes of faith, when we begin to calibrate our thoughts in line with the word of God, not our emotions, not with the raw data that we can just kind of see physically with our eyes and understand in our finite human mind. We begin to see things in the light of God's character, not our worries and anxieties. Friends, Christian courage, Christian courage does not just materialize out of thin air. Poof, I'm courageous. No, it arises in the hearts of believers who cling tenaciously to the promises of God. Here's the rub. Here's the rub, friends. Time and time again in, in your life and in my life, like on a daily basis, we're faced with the choice of whether we will act on what we know to be true of God in his word and the promises that he's made. When, when like Caleb, when like Caleb, faithfulness to God will mean being in the minority even right? When obedience might result in loss or hardship, when in order to receive the inheritance, we have to go slice some giants first. Teens, teenagers, youth. When the LGBTQ lifestyle is being celebrated as a virtue by all your friends, will you remain faithful to God? Even if faithfulness might mean that your friends' cancel you, or bully you on social media? Is the promise of God enough for you? Is the word that he will never leave you or forsake you in Christ enough to steal your resolve to never abandon him in the, in the face of this world? Beloved, who could have imagined a day when simply not lying about someone's biological identity might result in job loss or a failure to get hired? or apparently now in some places, the loss of one's children. Friends, don't capitulate. Don't give an inch of convictional ground. Yes, be gracious. Yes, be winsome. Yes, but don't you compromise a bit. Our God has promised to provide all of our needs according to the the riches uh, riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. No company or boss can take from you what the Lord can provide a thousand times over. But what about the everyday stuff? Will you trust the Lord's word that he's promised that there's grace for the humble? Or will you wall yourself off from transparent relationships in your pride or in your shame? Will you trust in God's promise that he will not withhold any good thing from those who Walk uprightly. No good thing will we withhold that you need for your eternal joy, or will you let your mind race down a million different pathways of worry and anxiety that God probably won't do that for you? Will you believe that Christ is really better and really more satisfying than any self-indulgent pleasure this world offers? Beloved, Christians are not those who simply believe truths intellectually. Christians are those who stake their very lives on what they believe. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Friends, as members of the body of Christ here at Redeeming Grace Church, we remind each other in our life together of God's great promises That as the kind of very means by which we persevere to the end. We do this with the assurance that even as we work out our salvation, it doesn't depend on us because it is God who works in us, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. It is yours, but go take it. Finally, number three, further up and further in. I mentioned earlier the precise kind of literary structure of chapters 14 to 19, but I left out one important thing in the structure. The very heart of these chapters is what we see right at the beginning of chapter 18. Chapter 18, right at the beginning. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh, And set up the tent of meeting there, the land lay subdued before them. Friends, theologically, this is the goal of it all. The ultimate goal of the conquest was, was not simply that God's people would be happy and fulfilled in the land. No, the ultimate goal was that God would dwell with his people in the land and that they would rejoice and worship him. In the flow of salvation history, God's throne had been mobile up to this point in the tabernacle that moved with the the camp of Israel no longer. God's covenant presence comes to rest in the land and the land lay what? Subdued before them. That's Genesis one language, isn't it? Be fruitful and multiply and what? Subdue the earth. Friends, this is nothing less than God through his people taking back the earth and putting it under his dominion. What was lost in Eden is starting to be recovered. God resides with his worshiping people. We see this, this same point clearly in these chapters through the inheritance of the Levites, the tribe of priests who facilitated the old covenant sacrifices and, and taught God's people the word, As it turns out, the, the, the Levites weren't given a, a specific plot of land as their inheritance. If you read chapter 21, you'll discover that they lived among all the different tribal plots of land throughout Canaan. Why? Doesn't seem quite fair, does it? Well, look at the very last verse of chapter 13. I know we're all over the map on this, uh, in this passage. Look at the very last verse of chapter 13. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. In other words, friends, by their proximity to God's presence and their kind of front row privilege in the worship of the Lord, friends, they did not need a plot of land because the Levites' inheritance was not the dirt, but God. No it may feel like the levites inheritance was kind of unique and different from the rest of israel but in reality what the what the levites were to do was model for israel and for all of us what we must have is our mindset biblical faith does not merely prize god's gifts does it biblical faith prizes and loves and adores above all who the giver of the gifts Psalm 142, 5. I cry to you, O Lord, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Or Lamentations 3:24, even when Israel was exiled outside the land, again because of sin, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Beloved, this is the goal of grace, it's the aim of your salvation. Not merely that you experience forgiveness, but that you know and love and experience God, that you are restored to the goal of Eden and worshiping and enjoying Him forever. You know, in John's great vision of, of Revel in Revelation, all the glories that we will see and experience in heaven, they pale in comparison to the one dominating, glorious, light filled reality. And I saw no temple in the city, John writes, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Well, friends, if you could have all the glories of the new creation, if you could have all the benefits of a release from your suffering and a glorified body and reunion with your deceased friends and relatives and family in the Lord, all the untold blessings of heaven, but no Jesus no presence of God, would that be enough for you? What does your heart long for? Is it merely your future glory? Or glory only as it is found in the glory of your God in Christ through his spirit? At the end of C.S. Lewis's final book in the Narnia series, The Last Battle, The characters are brought in at last into the joy of Aslan's country, which of course in the story represents heaven. And the the deeper they go into the land, they start talking and Lewis writes of one character. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life though i never knew it till now the reason why we love the old narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this breehee come further up and further in I love the reason why heaven will be the perpetual experience of discovering more and more and more of God's bounty and goodness and grace. It's because our God has not merely given us gifts. He has given us himself and his glory is inexhaustible. You can spend a lifetime getting to know God and not even come close to plumbing the depths of who he is. That's why he'll give us an eternity to do the same thing in a new world, to be satisfied in him forever as we explore the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of his love. Forever, we will go further up and further in. That is what our eternal inheritance is all about. God has given us himself. You say, John, how do I know? How do I know this inheritance is mine? After all, I mean, I know the story of the Old Testament. Israel didn't remain in the land. They were exiled again because of their idolatry. The glory of God left the land he left the temple. God didn't remain with his people forever. How do I know that all these future realities that you're talking about are really true and really reliable? Quite simply, friends, we remember the geography of the gospel. Our great hope is not that we have lived well enough to secure our future, but that Jesus our King lived righteously in the land for us. That he was exiled outside the camp, outside the gates of the city, outside the land, if you will. He experienced the father turning his back on the son as he bore our sins on the cross so that you and I might never have to experience that type of exile, that type of estrangement again. And then Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the first installment of the new creation, and he paved the way to the glory of the Father for you and me, so we might follow him there. And that was climactic. Friends, if you're not a Christian today, if you're not a Christian today, your only hope is not somehow to live a good enough life to qualify yourself for this inheritance, you could never do that.